But we'll come to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means for a few minutes, uh, what it means, why it matters, what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Numbers? Numbers chapter 13. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 104. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? And we'll read together. The Lord said to Moses, some men, uh, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. If you underline verses in your Bible, this is one you want to underline. The land that I am giving to the Israelites. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, please don't. But if you have your own Bible and you want to underline that, that is just key to everything about this passage. This is the land God has promised to give them. From each of the ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So the Lord commanded Moses and sent them from the desert of Paran. All of these were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. And he goes through all the names. We're not going to read them all. Two in particular, though, to keep an eye on. Verse 6, a guy named Caleb. And verse 8, a guy named Hosea. Which, if you jump over to verse 16, says, yeah, these are the names of the men who went. And then in parentheses, Moses gave Hosea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, two names very significant in this narrative we're going to read this morning. Verse 17, now, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and into the hill country, see what the land is like. See whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they walled or fortified? Uh, is there, how is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are, these, are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for ripe grapes. Now, he sends them into this promised land that God is giving them. 40-day journey, 500 miles they travel, actually these 12 guys, in all kinds of amazing places all through the land to see what it's like, to suss it out. They come to a place called Hebron, which was super important because that's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually buried. Really important place for like a significant Israelite history, God's faithfulness to his people. And then as they're on their way back, they grab some grapes. They said, bring some of the fruit. They come to this place where they grab one cluster of grapes and it's so big, two guys have to carry it on a pole. Obviously, this land is super, super fertile. So they back and they came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole Israelite assembly. Uh, and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. Wow, wow. But the people who live there are powerful. Uh, then the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. These guys are super tall, giant-like people. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. These are like, from Hebrew mythology, these like giant superpower dudes walking around. These guys are there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. 
That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire assembly, The land we pass through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more, just ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dig into this. Spirit of God, we're just asking you now to come and speak powerfully through this word. We believe that this is not just some ancient book that was written thousands of years ago. This was a book that was inspired by you to be written and then written down by men. And so we believe that because your spirit is alive, that you will speak to us now by that same spirit as we look at this, as we explore it ourselves. Would you show to us what you have for each one of us? You tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it, oh God. Accomplish that purpose in each one of us. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I don't uh, remember how many years ago it was exactly, but I remember how I felt that night when it happened. Um, My wife had been encouraging me to, just for a number of weeks now, to join her in watching this television series that she was loving, and some friends had recommended that we watch called Downton Abbey, which I had steadily been refusing to watch. I was just like, no, um, listen, that's cool, babe. Listen, you got shows you like? I've got shows I like. That's fine. Um, The idea of watching a bunch of British aristocrats walking around their mansion and drinking tea, that sounds like mind-numbingly boring to me. This sounds like one of those never-ending BBC film adaptation of Jane Austen novels. And I'm just like, no. No, thank you. Polite pass. Not interested. But one night, she finally got through to me, uh, wore me down, whatever it is. And I was like, okay, all right, yeah, I'll watch one. I'll watch one with you. Let's, I'll watch one episode. We'll see how it goes. And I don't think it was more than like 20 minutes into the episode, and I was just suddenly thinking, oh, shoot, this is really good. This is, this is really, really good. And then simultaneously wondering how I'm going to live down the conversion that taken place. I knew I was going to pay for that. But what was, what was going on there? Why, 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 why did I act that way? I mean, I knew my wife loved me. I knew that she knew the kind of things that I love. I knew that our friends that had recommended this show, uh, we had similar tastes to us. Why was I so unwilling to follow her into an experience that was infinitely better than whatever, I don't know, Simpsons reruns I'd been watching? Why was I so unwilling to just follow her into that? Now, I know what you're thinking. And no, it's not because I'm a man and men are idiots. 
That's an overgeneralization, not true. And that's not the reason either. The reason I was so unwilling to follow her into this is because of what I had observed. I had glanced over her shoulder a few times as she watched the show, and British aristocrats walking around their mansion drinking tea. And because of that, I came, became convinced ultimately that uh, the leading of my wife, the leading of my friends, hey, watch this show, it was just wrong. I, it couldn't be trusted. That uh, nothing could be better than what I already knew and was familiar with and liked. Nothing could be better than that. And as a result, I was missing out on what I now know is the good that they had intended for me. It's a great show. Highly recommend it. You can trust me. <laughs> so like I said uh, earlier today, we're starting this kind of short mini-series that's going to take us through September uh, called Questioning Faith looking at the questions that I believe that God is asking each one of us as it relates to the practice of our faith. And looking at the way that we can, often what we observe, convinces us that God can't be trusted. And as a result, we resist God. We rebel against Him. We don't follow Him where He leads, and we miss out on the fullness of all that He has for us. And the first question that we're going to look at today from our passage it's the question, where have I called you to go? Where have I called you to go? Now, I don't know if you uh, track this whole story that we just read. If you didn't know that the history of God's people, beginning roughly around Genesis 12, is this idea that there was a guy named Abraham that God called to leave his home, leave his country, everything he knew, and go to a place that he would later show him. And although Abraham and his wife Sarah were super old, God's promise to him was I'm going to create a nation through you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that I'm also going to give that nation a land in which they can dwell. And by the time we get to this passage in Numbers 13, God's already made good on the first part of that promise. Huge nation of Israel now. He has just delivered them out of their slavery in Egypt by a hugely miraculous deliverance. And they're standing now on, on the southern edge of this promised land that he's leading them into. So he's about to lead them into this land, but as we just finished reading, although God had clearly shown his power to be able to deliver, God had uh, called his people to enter into this land that as we saw in verse 2, he reminded them, this is the land I've promised to give you. I promise that this is the land you are going to go to. What the 12 spies who'd gone in to investigate the land observed led them to believe, at least most of them, that God could not be trusted. And led them to eventually rebel against God, just desire to go back to Egypt to what they knew before. And as a result of that, they missed out on the fulfillment of God's promise for them. An entire generation missed out and did not enter into this land that God had promised them. And the reason I want us to look back on this today is because as we embark on this next season of life, uh, summer's done, I'm sorry to say those words, and we're headed back into like school, work, life rhythms. We heard a lot of them even just this morning in our prayer requests. I believe uh, we can look through this passage this morning and apply it to ourselves and, and ask the question to ourselves, where is it that God is calling me to go? Do you think about your life specifically right now? Where is it that God is calling me to go, but that I'm refusing to follow him in because what I observe leads me to believe he can't be trusted? 
Maybe it looks like it's too hard, it's too scary, it's too uh, uh, different, maybe somehow inferior to what I'm used to, to what I know, to what feels safe. Where is God calling me to go right now? It was C.S. Lewis who famously observed in his book, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinitely, with infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We trade in, trade in the fullness of what God is offering to us for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes because we can't imagine that it would be any better than what we already know. And believing that God has just such an offer of greater joy for each and every one of us this morning, I want to spend a few minutes looking at this passage with the hope that you won't miss out on the fullness of all that God has for you. Whenever what you observe about where he's calling you to go leads you to want to trust more in what you can see than in the God who's calling you there. So in order to help us do that, I want to look at this passage quickly in just two ways. We're going to talk about fearful rebellion and then faithful reliance. Fearful rebellion, faithful reliance. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage in Numbers 13? So you can just follow along with me as we consider this first question that God has for us. Where have I called you to go? Okay, so let's look first of all at fearful rebellion. Fearful rebellion. Now, maybe that seems like too strong a word. Rebellion. Wow, that sounds like a pretty harsh word to describe the fearful response of the people of Israel to where God was calling them to go. I mean, they're just, they're just afraid. They're scared, right? When they see the size of these people, the size of the fortified cities in the land. Remember they said, we seem like grasshoppers beside these guys. And so we look to them. They're just afraid. Is this really rebellion? And yet if you look at verse 9 of chapter 14, you'll see that that's the exact word that Joshua and Caleb use when they describe what it would mean for them as a nation to turn away from the land that God had led them to and head back to Egypt. Do not rebel against the Lord, they say. And I think the reason they use that word, they say that, is because unlike what we looked at last week, for those of you who were here, uh, much more than simply expressing doubts and questions to God about what they're observing, you know, they're not just simply saying, hey, this, this looks impossible, God. We can't understand how you're going to be able to do this. That's doubt. What we see here, if you look to chapter 14, after the bad report from the 10 spies out of the 12 and the end of verse chapter 13, the people aren't just questioning God. They're not just going through seasons of doubt and saying, God, we can't see how you're going to do this. They've forgotten about God altogether. They're ready to ditch Moses, ditch Aaron, ditch God, and everybody, and just head back to Egypt. So look at verse uh, 2 of chapter 14. It says here, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt. Or if we died in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Which maybe without more context still doesn't sound that unreasonable to you until you realize this. Every single one of the people saying this stuff 
are people who were firsthand eyewitnesses to every single one of the miracles that God had just performed to bring them here. From the plagues in Egypt, they were there as all that was happening. These people watched the Red Sea open up and they walked through it. They'd been eating this miraculous bread falling out of the sky the whole time that sustained their lives as they wandered through the desert. They'd experienced all this stuff firsthand this whole time. Man, I can just imagine them stuffing this bread in their face uh, that had fallen from the sky, drinking water from their swell water bottles that they'd filled up from the water that had come out of a rock as they're saying all this stuff. There's no way. God, God just let us out here to kill us. Hey, can you hand me some more of that bread that falls from the sky? I'm starving right now. There's no way God can deliver us from the power of these people. Where'd you get that bracelet? Oh, it's from the strongest nation in the world right now that we used to be enslaved to. The the disconnect in their thinking right now is just unbelievable. And if you're still in doubt that this is full-on rebellion by God's people, what we see in verse 5 now of chapter 14 pretty much seals the deal. Look there. They, they say, forget it. They say, you know what? You guys are out. God's out. We're just going to go back to Egypt. Let's choose a leader and do it. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly gathered there. As one commentator uh, stated it, to fall on one's face in the Old Testament is the ultimate mark of religious worship and awe. Yes, but here it anticipates some great act of judgment. Moses and Aaron, sensing the presence of God, fall to the ground in fear of what he's about to do. They're like, get down. God's about to light these fools up. It's like what you used to do when you were traveling as a kid in the backseat of the car and one of your brothers or sisters started to get lippy with your dad and you would like move as far as you could away from them in the seat because you knew dad's hand was going to start swatting and you wanted to be out of the way. That's, that's why they're doing this. They're getting down for cover because they're like, God is not going to tolerate this. There's no way you can... Show this much contempt for him in the midst of all that he's shown you. And so when you read through this, although it might seem initially that their rebellion, it it looked like fear, what comes into clearer and clearer focus is that the fearful circumstances simply exposed their unbelief. And it exposed it again and again and again. The moment that things don't turn out exactly like they hoped they were, Gone. God, gone. Promise, gone. We just ditch everything. Let's head back to Egypt. And as you read on in chapter 14, you see really just a really awful, sad result of their rebellion as God responds in anger at their just continuous rebellion and unbelief. Listen, verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter into the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies, will fall in the desert. Wow. Can you even imagine an entire generation of people, except two, Joshua and Caleb, all rejected, all miss out on the fullness of what God had for them, the fulfillment of his promise. 
simply because of their fearful, faithless rebellion. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, referring to this very scene from Numbers 13 and quoting Psalm 95, the author writes this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts always are going astray. They have not known my ways, so I declare it on oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And then he goes on to apply it this way in verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Which means what? What? You better follow God where he's leading you or you're going to die in the desert. Is that, is that the application here? Wow. Boy, following Jesus sounds like a real day at Disneyland. Where do I sign up for that? Um, no. No, that's not what it means. What it means is that the, the sin that dwells inside all of our hearts is incredibly deceptive. And it also spreads like wildfire. Just like that bad report from the ten spies quickly spread throughout the camp of Israel that, and, and led them to rebel against God. And here's the thing. That bad report that the ten spies brought is the very same voice that is going to be screaming inside your ears every time God calls you to trust Him and go wherever He's calling you to go. This is not a unique experience. The bad reports come every time God calls you to go somewhere. They come from other people. They come from inside your own heart. And every time you're going to hear that voice telling you, don't do it. Don't try it. We can't do this. It's not possible. Maybe God said some stuff and maybe he didn't. I don't know, but he also gave you a brain. This can't be done. You're like a grasshopper beside these obstacles. You're going to get devoured if you head into this place that you're being called to go. That's, that's the bad report we hear every time God calls us to somewhere. And what I'm saying is that what that fear will ultimately reveal in you in the end is either true faith or unbelief, just as it did for the 12 spies, just as it did for the people of Israel. The fear that you feel at whatever that obstacle is in your way that looks impossible is going to reveal in you true faith or unbelief. Now hear me, I'm not suggesting for a moment that having, being afraid, having doubts somehow means you don't have true faith. No, it doesn't. That's what we spent 36 minutes talking about last Sunday. No, absolutely, it's entirely reasonable to have questions, to experience doubt when God calls you to something that looks intimidating, that looks fearful, that's confusing. It's totally natural to feel doubt in those circumstances. But what we learned is that we can bring those things to God. That's why he wants us to bring them to him. So he can quiet our fears. He can reassure us of his presence and his power. But as we saw, that's, that's not at all what the people of Israel were doing here. And if, like them, your fear of what God is calling you leads you to rebellion, leads you to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. If that's what God's calling me to, forget it. God, church, faith, whatever, I'm just kind of done with that. I'm headed back to Egypt. If that's your response in the face of fear, then it is entirely possible that you never had genuine faith to begin with. 
Unbelief is something very different than doubt and questions. Doubt and questions, entirely natural good. Unbelief, something very different. And that's what's being described here. Fear revealed the unbelief of God's people, not just their questions and doubts. So real-life example for me. In the early years of my marriage, what it was that God was calling me to was to be honest with my wife. To be truthful about who I really was, about the kind of things from my past that I just wanted to keep hidden away and didn't want her to know about. Present this perfect, nice, shiny picture. Well, as much as possible I could do. Uh, That's what God was calling me to do. But every single time I felt his call, that bad report was there in a moment saying, don't try him. Don't do it, man. It cannot be done. Maybe God said some things and maybe he didn't, but you're an idiot if you do that. You tell your wife the kind of person you are, who you really are without the lights and polish, kind of things you've done in your past, she's gone. Your wife gone, kids gone, your family's gone. Is that, is that really what you want? You can't do it. It's not possible. I absolutely felt like a grasshopper next to those fears because those things are so important to me. And the reality is that I remain deceived by that report and I may remain stagnant in my rebellion for years. And as a result, I missed out on the fullness of God, all that God was intending for me in my marriage. By his grace, we remained together. And over time, what was incredible is that as some friends and brothers came along and offered me a different report, much like the one we're going to see from Joshua and Caleb in a second, a mustard seed of faith was created inside me where I suddenly I began to trust. I began to say, okay, okay, I'll follow you into this. And I found, just as we always do, God really can be trusted to deliver on what he's promised. Where he's leading me, where he was leading me is so much better now. It's not perfect, but it's so much better than it was when I was willing to trust him and follow him into what he was calling me to do. So I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is right now. Maybe you're sensing already in your own heart what it is that God's calling you to. Maybe he's calling you to that same kind of radical, terrifying honesty. Maybe he's calling you to continue pursuing and and, and fighting for a relationship that looks hopeless. Maybe he's calling you to live in an impossibly uh, expensive city (laughs) And continue to serve his church here. Maybe he's calling you to live in a way that is radically uh, against and opposite to the prevailing narratives of our world right now. Maybe he's called you to move across the entire country and live in a whole new place. Maybe he's called you to go to a school where you don't know anybody and you feel isolated and all alone and it's scary and, and it's, it's, it feels impossible and I can't do this. And what I'm saying is every time You feel that call, I know. I know. The bad report, it just gets cranked up to 11 to try to drown out what it is God's calling you. You can't do it. It's not possible. But whatever God is calling you to, my encouragement to you remains the same as the Bible's. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't turn back to what you know. Don't turn back to what feels familiar and safe. The fullness of all God, the fullness of all that God has for you 
It's just on the other side of trust. And he can be trusted. And what he calls us to is infinitely better. Okay, so that's what fearful rebellion looks like. Last thing I want to talk with you about quickly is faithful reliance. Faithful reliance. How do we respond to that? And as I've already hinted at a few times, uh, where we see that example of faithful reliance is from the remaining two spies of those 12 that went in to investigate the land, Joshua and Caleb. And what we see from them is both an example of faithfulness as well as a strategy for dealing with those voices, those bad reports that come in from others, that come in from within. How do we deal with those things? Joshua and Caleb show us that. How do we deal with those bad reports whenever they come and God's called you to do something? He's called you to go somewhere. Where you see that, first of all, is in verse 30 of chapter 13. Look back with me there. So uh, the other 10 spies have uh, just brought this yes, but report to Moses as they come back. Yes, the land is as good as you said, but nah, it's full of scary giants and stuff. We can't go in there. Interestingly, um, all of the nations that they list here, oh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, these guys are there, are the exact nations that God listed to Moses when he promised him from the burning bush, this is the land I'm going to lead you into. It's the land of all those people. So as they're saying, and I'm sure Moses is like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's who is there right now, not, not for long. But for them, it's like, no, that means we can't go in there. But in response to this report, verse 30, we read this, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. I love how one pastor summarized Caleb's statement here as saying, Shut up, we can do it. Shut up, we could totally do it, we could certainly do it, which actually is one of the strategies for how it is that we deal with these bad reports whenever they come, because it's very much like something we looked at a few weeks ago when we talked about bringing God our sorrows. You remember, uh, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had talked about how it is that we are to talk to our sorrows, speak truth to our sorrows instead of just listening to them. Caleb is applying the exact same strategy here to these bad reports. We can't do it, it can't be done. Shut up, yes we can. You can, you can talk that way to these kind of questions that come to you, these bad reports. You can talk back to them. You don't just need to listen. But you also see Caleb's example of faithful reliance on God by the way that he speaks of, he says, we can surely go up and take possession of the land. He talks about this idea of taking possession. Now, no, I'm not suggesting that real estate transactions are the same in the ancient Near East as they are today, but principally... The idea is kind of similar because apparently, I don't know this, but when you buy a house, there's something called a possession date. When somebody actually gives you the keys and you're allowed to go in. But apparently the possession date is a combination of at least two things. It's when uh, all the sale is finalized, everything is finally paid for and goes through, financing is done, and when the occupants who are presently there agree to leave. Some combination of both those things as they come together, that is your possession date. Which means what Caleb is saying here, his faithful example here, is that what he's saying is he's so fully relying on God that if God has promised to give them this land, then both the sale as well as the occupancy are already as good as complete. We've got the possession date now. It's now, today. We should just go in and take it. We can certainly do it. I don't know, maybe you read verse 30 and you're not quite convinced. So maybe... Uh, Maybe we see Caleb as just one of those annoyingly optimistic people 
that uh, just constantly wanted you to suspend disbelief with them and think positively. I say that charitably because sometimes I'm one of those people. But is that what Caleb is? Is he like that guy, you know, NBA Finals, 10 seconds left in the game, you're down by like 40 points, and he's in the meeting going, guys, we could still do it. If we just believe in our team enough, don't give up. Nope. Probably want to be saying shut up to that guy as well. Is that what Caleb is? Is he just this like, no. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason is because of what both he and Joshua say later in chapter 14 in verses 6 through 9. Look with me there. Joshua, son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and they said to the entire assembly of Israel, the land that we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And why I'm saying that this is an example of faithful reliance and not simply just naive optimism is because nowhere in that entire report do Caleb or Joshua try to refute the report of the ten spies. They don't do that. They passionately contradict their conclusions, yes, but they don't contradict their report from those ten guys. Oh, fake news. No, that's not what they say. They They don't come in and say, no, you know what? Don't listen to them. It's fine. It's totally fine in there. Everybody's just regular-sized. And they're kind and welcoming to outsiders. We can do it. That's that's not what's going on here. They're saying, no, no, no. These dudes, these cities are just as big, just as heavily fortified as they said. Yeah, they are. But what they're saying is that this. Listen, it's, it's not that there's nothing to be afraid of. That's the report of Caleb and Joshua. It's not that there's nothing to be afraid of, but if God is with us, we don't need to be afraid. Boy, do we need to hear that when those bad reports come. No, I'm not saying there's nothing to be afraid of. But if God is with you, you don't need to be afraid. See, he says their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. The word protection in the original Hebrew is actually shade. He says their shade is gone, which if you think about living in like a crushingly hot Middle Eastern climate, shade is such an essential need in order to survive. He says their shade is gone. The Lord is with us. Just before that as well, uh, interestingly, Hebrew scholar Robert Alter pointed out the original Hebrew of that uh, line there where he says, we will swallow them up, is actually, for they are our bread. Which if you think about bread in the context of God's people in the wilderness, ought to immediately bring to mind that bread from heaven which God provided, which was a daily reminder of his provision, his love, his power, his ability. Which means what he's saying is these these scary inhabitants of the land, whoever they are, will be provided to them by the strength of God's hand just as the bread from heaven which has sustained us was provided by God's hand as well. And when it comes to whatever bad reports, whatever truly fearful circumstances that you observe, that you see in front of you with regard to whatever it's God's calling you to do, wherever he's calling you to go, 
I think the key difference between the report of those 10 spies and the report of Joshua and Caleb is the inclusion of the promise of God in their report. It's the factoring in of the promise of God in the report. If you look back and read it again, every time the 10 spies or the people of Israel refer to the land that they're being called to, not a single mention of God or his promise to give it to them. Remember, the spies came back. They say, the land you sent us into. It's not the land God promised to give us. Yeah, that land you sent us to. Always they, they edit out God. They factor out God. And yes, whenever you edit God out of the picture, yeah, of course it's going to look impossible because you've only got your own resources to rely on. One commentator noted this, the despondent spies, they magnified the problems and minimized their resources. How often do we do that exact same thing when we're faced with these impossible circumstances? We magnify them as like the biggest thing in the world, and oh, I can't, I, what God is this? Minimize the resources. And yet, if you look at Joshua and Caleb, every time they speak of this land that God's called them to, it's always in reference to God's promise. It's always in reference, he's promised us, he's going to deliver this, he's going to provide it to us. And what I'm saying is that if you'll only consider the seemingly impossible obstacles in front of you like that, then you, any situation, whatever it is, can look possible again. Because now you're operating not with your own meager resources, but with God's infinite resources. You're applying that to the picture, and now every situation looks possible. Again, as Raymond Brown puts it, we must certainly begin with a realistic assessment of our limitations. Yes. Great things are achieved by God's servants when they're brought to an end of their own slender resources and realize that they have no alternative but to rely totally on his limitless provision. To operate in brash self-confidence is to court disaster, yet to remain in towering self-doubt is to distrust God. So acknowledge your limitations. Yeah, you can't do it, but God can yeah, it looks terrifying and scary based on what you have. To God, it doesn't look scary or terrifying at all. And if he's with you, you can certainly do it. Which is something in all this discussion that I never want to lose sight of. Just to acknowledge that, yes, although the goodness of what God was calling them to, what he, what he was calling his people to do was, was undeniably great. It was oceans better than their experience back in Egypt, which is all that they knew, and they couldn't think of anything better infinitely better, and yet the observable obstacles that they needed to face in order to experience the fullness of that promise, it was scary. Come on. Terrifying obstacles in front of them. It looked impossible, humanly speaking. It did. We can't just gloss over that and be like, oh, you should have just trusted God. No, it looked impossible. And yet one of the reasons the Bible is such a help to us today, particularly as we get to know the God of the Bible better and better, is that along with revealing His character, a loving, gracious, compassionate, powerful God. What we also have recorded for us in these pages is example after example after example of circumstances that looked humanly impossible, that looked like any of us things that we would say that can't be done, there's no way we can attack them, and yet that God still easily overcame. Endless examples in this book of situations that looked as impossible or more then whatever looks so impossible to you right now, and God easily overcame in a moment. A clear example of that 
uh, simple but clear from the New Testament would be that scene from Matthew 14 when Jesus is walking out on the water in the midst of a storm and he calls Peter to get out of the boat and walk to him. Now, you don't need a doctorate in physics at UBC to know that that's not going to work out. That's impossible. A fully grown man whose name means rock getting out of a boat onto the water, that's not going to end well. And yet, as Peter trusts in Jesus' promise and follows him out into what would otherwise be an impossible circumstance, he too finds God can be trusted. He can be trusted to deliver on what he's promised, and Peter's unable to walk out on the waves to Jesus. It's just like I said, the fullness of all that God has for you, the fullness of his promise to you, all that he wants you to experience is just on the other side of your trust. It's right there. And I believe you will find the very same thing to be true in your own life. As whatever it is that God's calling you today, as you thought about that question, maybe something came to you. I I know that God's calling me to this and I haven't been willing to trust him and follow him into it. I know that it'll be just the same for you today. I know it'll be the same for us as a church, as a gathering of God's people, as we step out into this year, whatever God's calling us to, whatever it is. Because here's the thing. What Peter saw visually that night in the boat, looking out and seeing Jesus there, was equally true in Numbers 13 and is just as true for you and I today. And it's this, wherever God is calling you to go is ultimately a call to himself. Wherever God is calling you to go is ultimately a call to himself. Remember, Jesus' call to Peter wasn't get out of the boat and go try walking on the water. No, it was Climb out of the boat and come to me. He is the destination. And not only is he there at the destination, the great hope of the Bible is that his promise to us is this. He will also walk alongside you to that destination every step of the journey of where he's called you to. We need to know what his promises are in order to be able to walk into them with more confidence. But he is there at the end. He's there at the destination, and he's there beside us every step of the way. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do today, take that first step of faith. Trust him in it. He will be faithful to lead you into all the goodness of what he has for you. If only we'll take that first step of trust.